the 1980s. 1980s. For some of you, that was just yesterday. For others, that was the Stone Age. Our church was in our second decade of existence in the 1980s. And we are now at the beginning of our sixth decade. That makes it sound a little more like the Stone Age, doesn't it, than just yesterday. It wasn't really that long ago. And the 1980s, our church was led by a missionary with Biblical Ministries Worldwide who pastored our church named Steve Barsoon. And we have the privilege of having him and his wife, Lori, in our presence today. So if you've not met them, make a point to do so today. Uh, They helped anchor down this ministry for many years. And um, most of you weren't around then, but some of you were. And uh, we we should show our gratitude uh, toward them by personally thanking them today. Um, Also, isn't it great being back together? I I saw a post online over the weekend, um, just yesterday or the day before, and the post said something like, this was in response to Trump's announcement that churches are essential. The post said something to the effect of, what can churches do in person that they can't do online? And then threw in a little, I'll wait at the end, like no one can answer such a question. Uh, I replied to the person who posted that, <laughs> if you can imagine. <clears throat> I said, go to a good one sometime and find out for yourself. Uh, he didn't like that response, but haven't we experienced some things here this morning that you just can't experience without being here? To hear the prayer, to hear the songs, to hear the children crying, interrupting the songs, all of that, isn't it precious? Isn't it a gift? And we can think about in the Christian's future how there will be nothing like truly being in the full presence of our Lord. How today we do meet God in the Scriptures and we hear Him speak in the Scriptures, but won't there be a difference when He wipes away every tear? And you can't really compare what this life is to the next, and you can't compare being away from the body of Christ here to being with the body of Christ. It's just a different experience that God has designed for our good and for His glory. Let's pray and remember our brothers and sisters in Christ who cannot meet this morning, who can't have the experience that we're having. Let's remember them particularly together. Father, we thank you for this day and for this time that we can be here, this fellowship that we have, kindred souls, hearts knit together through the gospel. Thank you, Lord. God, we ask that you would build us up today, that this would be truly a time of edification because of your word and the wisdom that you are able to make flow through your people by your spirit. Lord, we ask that today you would especially comfort our brothers and sisters, not only around the world, but in our own country, perhaps in the next state over those who have not been able to gather now for months. God, cause them to feel the pain of that, that your people would hurt when they can't gather. 
and that they would do all that they can to find a way to truly fellowship, to truly experience the family of God as you've designed here in this place. Encourage them today and build them up using any means that you see fit that they would be encouraged somehow today. And Lord, for those in our own fellowship who we haven't seen for a while, who have good reasons for not being able to come back yet, cause us to remember them through the week. Cause us to reach out, to see ourselves as ministers of the gospel, not only to a lost world, but to our family here. And encourage them today. Hopefully, they're watching this right now and use this time as a time of encouragement for them. And Lord, we ask that as we open your word and look into your law, that we would be able to say with the psalmist that we love your law, that we would feel that, that we would treasure it in our hearts and that it would serve as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, bless our time studying it today. And I ask that though I am a sinner both by nature and by choice, that you would still use me to make your word clear to your people. That I wouldn't get in the way, but that your text would be perfectly clear, front and center, holy scripture before your people. Lord, we ask that we would see application of this law in our day, that your spirit would do the work, and that wherever you lead, we would go. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to do something uh, intentionally this morning as we wrap up the sundry laws in Deuteronomy. We are going to close out these chapters that have covered the varied laws in Deuteronomy. We're going to be in chapter 25, so turn there if you haven't already. But I want us to look at how the law shows up again and again throughout Scripture. I want to put that particular emphasis on it this morning as we study this law, that we would see how understanding the law helps us understand the Bible. And we're going to put a scripture on the screen, so you don't have to turn there, but 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, this church should know these verses. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Look at verse 16 again with me. It says, all Scripture. Go back one verse there, Joseph. All Scripture. Do you think Paul, when he penned those words to that young pastor Timothy, do you think he had Deuteronomy in mind? Do you think he had the law in mind? I would go as far to say that he especially had the Torah in mind when he wrote those words. All Scripture, God's law, is profitable for the Christian, for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. And I want to make a point in the first part of the sermon today that the better you understand the law, the better you will understand the Bible. The better you understand the Torah of God, the better you will understand the whole counsel of God. So let's look together as we wrap up these sundry laws. We're going to 
Uh, talk about five today, five sundry laws in chapter 25. The first one is found in verses 1 through 3. Chapter 25 of Deuteronomy, starting with verse 1. It says, If there is a dispute between men and they go to court, and the judges decide their case, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten... The judge shall then make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. He may beat him forty times, but no more, so that he does not beat him with many more stripes than these, and your brother is not degraded in your eyes. So the first varied law that we're looking at today is beatings as punishment in the law. And this was regulated specifically in Scripture. There's a scenario presented where two men are in court, one is declared guilty, and as punishment, the beatings were to take place right then and there. Now, the law that limits the beatings to 40 is intended to curb our fallen tendency to overreact to overpunish, to go beyond what is due in our anger. And I suppose anyone here who has had children knows what this is like. That even if the child deserves some form of discipline and your anger is righteous in that moment, don't we have a tendency as fallen human beings to let that anger keep going, to bubble, and to overpunish? to abuse a child in one way, shape, or form. This law was meant to curb that in the courts. It was to serve the cause of justice. Now, what's interesting about this law is that it evolved a little bit in the Jewish circles, and it didn't evolve to anything about a wet noodle. Maybe you've heard about that one. Uh, There are no stripes with wet noodles that became the actual uh, law in Israel. But perhaps you remember reading in the New Testament 39 lashes, or 40 lashes less one. In fact, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, when he was recounting all of his beatings, 2 Corinthians 11.24, he said that he received multiple times 39 lashes. That's because in Israel, they took the law of 40, took it down one, and 39 is generally what they beat people, uh, 39 times is how often they would beat people in a case such as this. Now, with Paul... He received five times, it says, the 39 lashes. But if you look at what happened to Jesus, what we sang about this morning in the power of the cross, it doesn't say they stopped at 39 or at 40. It seems that in the case of Jesus, in every way, his trial was a sham, including his apprehension and the way they treated him, and they beat him over the head, it says. It just says repeatedly they beat him. I don't think they held themselves back. They, I don't think they reserved the number of beatings. It's an interesting uh, law that shows up multiple times in the New Testament. The next one is found in verse 4, a simple law, one verse. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Well, this one we're probably not very familiar with in our culture. I don't think many of you had to deal with a muzzled ox today, did you? Uh, Not many of you have oxen that are threshing the grain. Well, this law has to do with covenant commitment or love, just generally love toward all of God's creatures. 
that the people would be fair and just even with the animals. Now, this is not an endorsement for PETA. This isn't the PETA verse, okay? So don't uh, think that I'm saying that and don't make that connection in your mind. But what this is about is not preventing an animal from eating while it works. And I have a video since it's probably been a while since the last time any of you have seen an oxen thresh grain. Well, we're going to show a video of this. Three oxen yoked together threshing some grain so you can get an idea of what that looks like. And notice what goes into their mouths as they stomp around on top of the, the grain there. He probably doesn't care about Deuteronomy 25. <laughs> okay, so there's just a little clip of what it looks like for oxen to thresh grain. They're stomping out the grains. And you saw in that black ox's mouth, he picked up a scoop for himself. Well, muzzling the ox was intended to keep them from eating so that they would concentrate on working and working alone. And God says, look, he's working for you. Let him eat. Let him take from what he is doing. Uh, preventing unjust treatment of animals. Now, in the New Testament, this verse comes up twice. Isn't that interesting? That this little verse about oxen would come up a couple of times in the New Testament. Both times this verse was used by Paul. He brought up this law in 1 Corinthians 9 and in 1 Timothy 5, speaking to those who minister the gospel, allowing them to receive some sort of payment to get their living from serving in the gospel. Uh, the same idea being applied there with the oxen who's stomping out the grain, let him eat. And the one who works hard, dedicates his life to serving for the gospel, allow him to eat too. I really like that application of the law. I think, I think that's really special. Um, now, we don't want to take every law that we read about in Deuteronomy and say, well, there must be some sort of New Testament spiritual meaning. that It can't mean just oxen. It has to mean something else. The oxen are obviously pastors, and, and eating grain is obviously payment. Well, it's not obvious. It's not obvious. We rely on the New Testament to make those connections for us. If we were all free to make all of those allegorical connections, where would we be? <laughs> Not all in the same room, I'll tell you that much. We would all have our own churches. So we need to rely on the New Testament to make those types of connections for us. And we can still look at the law and see the truth behind the law and God's heart behind the law and see application in our day. We can do that, but not like the New Testament does. And so we reserve that sort of connection for those 27 books in the second part of your Bible. The next law begins in verse 5. It says, When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. There's a lot happening in that verse, so we would do well to pause and consider the scenario that's being presented. Now, uh, this whole taking your brother's wife happens in a specific context. I want you to get that first. You notice there are some qualifications here. 
The brothers are living together. This doesn't necessarily mean in the same house. It could mean they're sharing the same property they received as an inheritance or something of that nature. They're living together, and one of them, the one who dies, has no son. And what's also being assumed in this verse is that the other brother was unmarried. Okay, so there's the scenario. Two brothers on the same property, one has no son, well, they both have no children, One is married, the other one's not, and the married one dies. I want to contrast this with Leviticus 18. You don't have to turn there, but Leviticus 18, 16 gives this command to Israel. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. So notice that this is the general law. Don't be catting around with your sister-in-law. That's the law. That's a good law, right? Um, But in a specific scenario... When your brother dies, you have no wife, he had no son, then in that instance, is it appropriate for him to take her as his wife? The brothers had to be sharing the same property and she had to have no son. This is what's called a leveret marriage or liverite marriage, where the uh, brother would then take his sister-in-law in the instance of the brother dying. And the whole purpose of it was that the name would continue, that the brother who died, his name would not vanish in all of Israel, but that his name would remain. And it was important to them. Look, with, look at me with uh, verse 6. Look with me at verse 6. Don't look at me with verse 6. Look with me at verse 6. It says, It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders And pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face, and she shall declare, Thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called, his name shall be called, the house of him whose sandal is removed. Well, that was interesting. (laughs) We don't practice that one anymore, do we? Uh, Thankfully. Refusing, the, the brother refusing to do his duty in continuing his brother's name was shameful in Israel. It was a shameful thing. Brothers had a responsibility to the family to carry on the lineage by any means they could. That if they were in a position to serve their brother by allowing him to have a child in a sense, because the child would be named after him, That was the duty that they were to perform, and refusing to do so was an abomination. They viewed carrying on the lineage as critical. In my family, for 24 years, I was the last Howard standing in my particular branch of that big Howard gnarly tree. Uh, My dad had no brothers. He only had one first cousin who was male, and the first cousin had only daughters, and my dad had only me, and they were the last two Howards at their time, and I was the last Howard at my time. 
So I told Melissa from the beginning, we have to have more than one son. She did a good job. There you go. <laughs> Worked out. If we didn't have sons, then the Howard name would die out uh, in that line, which is interesting. And I, I felt that pressure. We'd go to family reunions growing up, and I would be reminded that I was the last one. <laughs> I had no control over it, but God saw fit to give us a pair of sons. And after our second son was born, I said, okay, we can have all the daughters we want now. And then after we got one, I said, no, wait, one's good. <laughs> but I love this quote about families and the importance of families from Daniel Block. He said in his commentary, a culture that fails to value children as the continuation of the life of their parents will diminish the dignity and joy of parenthood and soon begin to treat them as independent entities that may be disposed of at will. Is that true or is that true? Went on to say, Christians would do well to recover the notion of the extended family as an organic unity whose health depends on the well-being of each member. So true. God designed the family. The family is critical in the propagation of God's purposes in the world. And we need to take the family seriously. God took it seriously. In His law, look what it says again in verse 10, the last verse of that passage. If that brother refused to do his duty, his name in Israel would forever be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. He was to be known for the rest of his days as the brother who would not do his duty. It was shameful in God's eyes. This law had to do with securing inheritances. How would property be passed on? How would the inheritance be passed on from generation to generation if there was no son to pass it on to? And this law is what's at the heart of the book of Ruth. Turn with me to that book. Can you find the book of Ruth this morning? Find that little uh, four-chapter book of Ruth and look with me at um, verses 5 through 10. We're going to look at chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4, verses 5 through 10. If you remember the story of Ruth, she and her sister-in-law, Orpah, were married to brothers. I'm not going to try to remember the brothers' names offhand, or even pronounce them offhand. But they, Orpah and Ruth were married to a set of brothers. And their mother-in-law was Naomi. Naomi was the mother of the two husbands, and the two husbands died. And Ruth decided to stay with Naomi, and Naomi remembered that there was a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer in Israel who could take Ruth as his own bride. There was another redeemer. One was named Boaz, and I forget the other one's name, if we even know the other one's name. But Boaz was the one who was second in line. There was a kinsman who was closer in line, and it was his duty, according to the customs of Israel, to take Ruth as his wife. And Boaz goes to talk to this man about taking Ruth as his wife, and we'll start in verse 5 of chapter 4. Ruth 4, verse 5, it says, Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, 
I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Verse 10, moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. Now, several things are happening in the story of Ruth that aren't in lockstep with what we just read in Deuteronomy 25. According to Deuteronomy 25, Ruth was to be the one to go take off his sandal and spit in his face. There was no spitting. That would have been a really cool feature in that passage, but we didn't have that, that, that uh, element. Also, the man whose sandal was removed was not the brother of Malon, the deceased. He was the next of kin, the next closest relative. And so customs had evolved a little bit in Israel, but that's what the story is based on was the law about redeeming your own kin. There's another place in the Bible where this law comes up that you would do well to remember. Matthew 22. Turn with me to the book of Matthew in the New Testament, chapter 22. I want you to see how the more you understand the law, the more you will understand what's going on in the rest of the Bible. Matthew 22, starting at verse 23. Matthew chapter 22 starting with verse 23. It says, On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned Him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Okay, we're tracking. That's right. Good job. They've they've read the law, and that's correct. Now look what they do. Verse 25. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. That just sounds like a trap, doesn't it? It just sounds not good. Remember, the Sadducees didn't even believe in a resurrection. And their question is, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Their question had nothing to do with the law itself. The law has to do what happens in this life. And then they wanted to test him on marriage in the afterlife. That's a pretty common tactic, by the way, when you're dealing with people in evangelistic conversation when they already have some religious pre-commitments, which we all do, and they throw a Bible verse out there and they want to catch you, they, they think that they've got you trapped. Just the first thing you can ask is, does their question have anything to do with the passage that they just read? Most of the time it doesn't. 
Look at what Jesus says. You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, you, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus clarified things for them. There is a resurrection, but people aren't married in that resurrection. They neither get married nor are they given to one another in marriage, but they are like the angels who were not created to be married and to procreate. That's what our afterlife will be like. All this stemming from a question about Deuteronomy 25, supposedly. Isn't that interesting? Okay, let's go back there together. Deuteronomy 25, back to our text. And the next law we'll look at is an interesting one. And I haven't decided how I'm going to read it yet, but here we go. Deuteronomy 25, starting with verse 11. If two men, a man and his countrymen, are struggling together... And the wife of one comes near to deliver her husband from the hand of one who is striking him and puts her hand and seizes that. Then you shall cut off her hand. You shall not show pity. Interesting law there, isn't it? This is the only law in the whole Torah where the punishment for the crime is mutilation of a body part. This is the only law where someone's hand gets cut off or foot gets cut off or an eye gets plucked out or anything like that. This is the only one. And her hand is to be cut off. Let me give you three reasons as to why this is so. You might be wondering, overcorrection on the punishment there. Whoa, we went a little too far. Well, let me give you three reasons, okay? The first reason is that God's design is to be respected in every way. God's design of men and women, His making of male and female, is to be respected in every way. Not exploited, but respected. That has many different applications, but I think you can see the application here in this law. She was not respecting, but rather exploiting God's design. Secondly, the act was shameful. It was a shameful act. There are some translations out there who may say something about the parts being private. And that's a very good translation. That's a very fair translation. In fact, this law is the only place where we see the Hebrew word that means this, meaning parts that are private. And it can also be rendered parts that are shameful. And we see this in the New Testament. You don't have to turn there, but we'll put up on the screen 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is talking about the church that God builds and how we're all different parts of the same body coming together, being fashioned and fit together by God. And in 1 Corinthians 12, it says, It is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Verse 23, And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. And did I put verse 24 on there or did I stop there? Okay, so here you see less honorable parts, parts that aren't presentable. This is rooted in the law. There's an idea that there are certain aspects of the human anatomy that are to be considered private. 
to be covered. To expose or exploit would be shameful, even in this type of scenario where a woman is attacking in defense of her husband. When talking about this law to a few people this week, guy friends, uh, I, uh, I was asked the rhetorical question of, why would a woman even do that? I, there are so many things that a woman could do. Um, why that? Uh, I was talking to Rex about it earlier this week, and he mentioned how when he was a police officer, you would go to a domestic disturbance. A husband and wife had been fighting. Maybe he was even beating up on his wife. And you get there to try to protect her, and you get into it with the husband, and maybe you have him on the ground, and you've got to think about your gun because the wife might grab for the gun out of loyalty to the husband who was just abusing her. And in those moments, uh, she could jump in and do anything. And at that time, they didn't have guns. They didn't have advanced weapons. And that would be a pretty effective way of stopping someone. But it's shameful, it says. Third reason why this deserved punishment. I believe there's a reason why this is listed right here after the previous passage. Remember why the brother was to take his sister-in-law? It was to carry on the name, the importance of generations continuing, God's design for procreation. And if her intent was to hurt a man so that he would not be able to have offspring, that's another reason that it is particularly evil to do such a thing. So there are three reasons for you. There's that passage for you. Uh, Add it to your Bible study list this week and pray about it. Tell me what you come up with, okay? All right, verses 13 through 16, the fifth and last sundry law of the day. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a full and just weight. You shall have a full and just measure, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. For everyone who does these things... Everyone who acts unjustly is an abomination to the Lord your God. This law has to do with equity in calculating payments. The weights and the measures most often had to do with figuring out what was owed to you and what you owed to someone else. And there were various ways that this took place. Yet it was possible in those days when you didn't have a calculator on your phone just to punch things in, it was possible then to carry around weights and measures, a particular set that you would use when you owed somebody something, and another set that you would use when somebody owed you something. You can imagine how a tape measure, for example, could be skewed by some more hash marks and numbers that perhaps skip or jump around a little bit, how people could do that to gain something for themselves wrongly. Well, God commands that there be equity and justice in calculating payments, that this is an aspect of showing love for your neighbor, is to be fair even when you are on the short end of the deal. And we know this very well in our day. Even with all the advanced technology that helps keep things consistent and fair, we still love injustice at times, don't we? Think about the last time someone truly offended you on the road doing something illegal, flying right by, you know, they got the exhaust and everything, and they're just like grumpy at the world, and they were grumpy at you when they passed you, and you thought, where is the the police officer? I haven't seen a cop through here, and I don't know how long. Someone should stop him. 
Now think about the last time you were going 35 and a 25. And before it was too late, you noticed that there was a police officer on the side of the road. What was your prayer? <laughs> Delay justice, O oh Lord. <laughs> May you spare me this day. Those weights and measures aren't equal, are they? We want justice for them, but not for us. And that has a variety of applications. I want you to see some things in Scripture. Again, you can just jot these down. We'll have them up on the screen. Proverbs 16.11, look what God says about His own weights and measures. A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are His concern. God is perfectly just when He renders His judgment. And then in the New Testament... Perhaps your mind didn't go here. 1 Timothy 3, qualifications for elders and deacons. It says, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. Men who lead, and really these qualifications are good for all of God's people. Those who desire to be exemplary, above reproach in every area of life, not fond of sordid gain. Moving the goalposts around, redefining what fair is so that you might come out ahead. God calls it an abomination. Verses 17 to 19, Deuteronomy 25, the last few verses. It says, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies and the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. This man Amalek came from the lineage of Esau. If you remember Jacob and Esau back in Genesis, the brothers, uh, the twins, and how Jacob was the father of Israel, became, he became Israel. His name was Israel. And Esau was the father of the Edomites. Esau became a constant enemy with Israel, though he's a brother. And one particular instance is referenced here. Perhaps you have a Bible with cross-references that will lead you to the narrative. But the instance of when the Edomites, specifically the Amalekites from the lineage of Esau attacked Israel in a very, uh, let's say, uh, not fair way, where they were tired and weary, the Israelites were, and the Amalekites came in and attacked them from behind. It was not just warfare. Therefore, God says, take care of Amalek and all of his offspring. They gave no mercy, and they will receive no mercy. That is God's judgment toward them. Now, for chapter 26, we will go through this pretty fast. Um, I spent too long on the first part of the message, but you have nowhere to go. Um, so let's look at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 26. We are now shifting our thinking toward what happens when the Israelites enter the land. And there's specific ceremony that's presented here that they would do when they entered the land. It says, now, keeping the law, going into the land, it shall be... 
When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and you possess it and live in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you bring in from the land that the Lord your God gives you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish His name. You shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare this day to the Lord my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. You shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. But there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. We'll stop there for a moment. Uh, This is, again, seemingly a one-time event when the Israelites would enter into the promised land. There were feasts of first fruits that would continue throughout Israel, but this one seemed to be particular for when they entered the land. They were to take the first of their harvest to the tabernacle for the sake of feasting there with the Levites and with the alien who sojourned among them. And God dictated the very words that they were to say in their worship. Isn't that interesting? It's a quote here. You are to say to the priest, X, Y, Z, dictated down to the very word. And what God has them say is really just a proclamation of His goodness. It starts out by saying, we weren't a nation. My father was a wandering Aramean. We had no roots in and of ourselves. We were just a wandering small people. But God, God called us. And there's reference made to Egypt here that He took us down to Egypt, and Egypt served as an incubator of sorts. That in the human experience, it was an awful place. It was a punishment that they had to be wondering what they did to deserve, but God was actually growing them. He placed them in that incubator, though they received harsh oppression. And they're recognizing that in this proclamation and recognizing that they have no worth in and of themselves. Look at what they cry out next according to God's words for them. Verse 7, Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror, and with signs and wonders. And He has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Recognizing God's sovereign grace in their lives, they were to celebrate entering the land, to take the fruits of their harvest. Now, this is important that they were called to do this and say these specific words. Because if you haven't seen it yet in the Old Testament... Israel didn't have a very good memory. Israel would quite often forget who they were and who God was, how they became who they were, and how God proved Himself faithful over and over and over again among them. They were a forgetful people. And they also refused to worship God rightly in many cases. They would take on the pagan gods from all around them. They didn't have this constant view that the Lord was the one worthy of worship. And so God takes these words recounting His faithfulness to them, and He puts those words in their mouth, and that was their worship at this feast, the Feast of first fruits. 
It was a form of worship and a form of fellowship. Look at verse 10. Now behold, I have brought the first of the produce of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you and the Levite and the alien who is among you shall rejoice in all the good which the Lord your God has given you and your household. The pagan nations around Israel would do things similar to this to appease their fertility gods. They believed the god of fertility would give uh, fruit to the ground and that would bring forth produce. But here they were to do this specific act, say these specific words, all in worship to a very specific God, the God who saved them. They were to be unlike those other nations. They were also to give a special tithe. Look at verse 12. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, then you shall give it to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, and to the widow, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. You shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion from my house and also have given it to the Levite and the alien, the orphan and the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed or forgotten any of your commandments. I have not eaten of it while mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor offered any of it to the dead. I have listened to the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation, from heaven, and bless your people Israel in the ground which you have given us, a land flowing with milk and honey, as you swore to our fathers. This special offering was to be done in worship, right along with more proclamation of God's goodness. They were to continually emphasize and continually remember that they were totally dependent on God. Can you see the dependence on God that Israel was to have in these verses, in these proclamations? You took us and you placed us here. You've given us this and we're giving it back to you. Totally dependent on God. And then they received the task ahead. Verse 16. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have today declared the Lord to be your God and that you would walk in His ways and keep His statutes, His commandments, and His ordinances and listen to His voice. The Lord has today declared you to be His people, a treasured possession as He promised you and that you should keep all His commandments, and that He will set you high above all nations which He has made for praise, fame, and honor, and that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as He has spoken. We are winding down the giving of the law. Israel is preparing to enter this land. There are just a few chapters left, 34 chapters in Deuteronomy. And what a charge they're given here at the end of these laws. That they were to be a holy, set-apart, consecrated people. There are a few things I want you to notice in these last verses of this chapter. Notice that Israel was called His people, and then they were told to obey. Did you see that? Look again with me. And I believe it's verse 17. Um, verse 18, rather. The Lord today has declared you to be His people, 
and that you should keep his commandments. Keeping commandments did not come before the proclamation of being his people. If that were the case, nobody would be his people. If keeping the commandments were a prerequisite for becoming a child of God, then we would all be orphans. There would be no way for us to earn that favor from God. But instead, this salvation in the Old Testament, just as in the New, begins with God's declaration of an individual, you are mine. Now be holy. In light of this fatherhood that God gives us, we are to walk in our Father's ways. I want you to notice the seriousness of the command here in these verses. There was no wiggle room in any of this. It says, verse 18 again, keep all His commandments. That is what they were to do. They were to declare that it would be good to keep His law and then to do it. They were to be like Ezra. Do you know Ezra chapter 7, verse 10? Write it down. That's a memory verse. Ezra 7, 10. Ezra set his heart to study the law of God. That was number one. And then to do it, that's number two. And then to teach it, number three. You think that order makes sense? I do. Study, do, teach. Israel was to have that sort of an attitude toward the law of God. To love it so much that they wanted to study it and to do it, to live it, and to teach it, to encourage others to join them. They were to know God's particular choice of them, that there is but one God and one people of God. Notice again in this passage, verse 19, what is God doing? Setting them high above all the nations that He has made. And why is He doing it? For praise, fame, and honor. Whose praise and fame and honor? The glory of God alone is our proclamation, isn't it? that they would be a consecrated people, that they would be different than the rest of the world, that not everybody in the world is of the people of God. But there's but one people of God. There aren't many peoples of God. There's but one people of God. They were to recognize that. Because of God's goodness, they were members of His family. Do you remember what Israel's purpose was in Isaiah 42? It says in Isaiah 42, verse 6, Israel was called to be a light to the nations. That was their purpose. God established them in the world to be a light to the nations. That means they had to be different than the other nations. That means they had to be set apart from the nations. And the only way that they could be set apart is because of God's choosing of them. Because God didn't choose those other nations. God chose them and called them from that position to be different. The church has not replaced Israel, but in many ways, there's a lot of overlap here. I want you to look with me at the screen, 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this about the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so then the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. See the same order? God calls you as his people. Then God sets before you holiness. He makes us holy, and then he calls us to be holy. If we get that flipped around, we get the gospel flipped around. If we believe God calls us to be holy, and then if we're good enough, we get declared holy, we've missed the gospel. The gospel starts with, you are unclean, you are unholy, you have rebelled against the Lord your God, the one who has made you. You have rejected him for your own desires, your pride. You've wanted the natural lusts of the flesh more than you've wanted humble worship of the Lord your God. But God, in his infinite mercy, has chosen to set his love on you. He has chosen you. He has desired that in Christ you would be transferred from this kingdom of darkness that you loved and be brought into light, that you would be transferred, picked up out of the murky, nasty waters of your sin and brought forth to stand on the rock, Jesus Christ. And the way that happens is not by any work of your own, but by God declaring because of Jesus' finished work that His work applies to your soul. That what Jesus did as He lived a perfect life and died that death we deserved, all of those merits that Jesus earned would apply to you individually. That He would purge your sin, utterly, thoroughly cleanse you, All these laws we've been reading about and those ways that you've failed in those laws, the the ways that you've been unjust, the ways that you've been fond of sordid gain, as the New Testament says, all of those transgressions of the law can be erased in Jesus. It can be wiped clean and replaced with something, not just an empty marker board that's just white and blank. But instead, it's filled with the most beautiful mosaic, the most beautiful tapestry of righteousness. You don't get a clean slate. You get a slate that's full of Jesus' goodness. It's all yours in Jesus. And together as the church, we recognize we are His people. There is but one people of God, those who are in Christ. And knowing this, let us obey. Knowing this, let us look to the law and say, we love it. We love it. We love the way it hurts us. We love the way it offends us with its strong punishments because God's good in all of his judgments. And we love the way that it gives us a path to walk in righteousness as we read it and we see God's good beauty. Let us take this seriously for his sake. Lights of the world. Israel was a light to the nations, and Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, we are lights to the world. Let's do it for his sake. Father, again, we thank you. 
for your faithfulness, your kindness, your perfections, and your mercy. God, give us grace today. Grace to see our sin. Grace to see Jesus' righteousness that we have. And grace to see sanctification, application, ways that we need to change our lives so that we may live holy lives for you who have already called us holy on the merits of Jesus. Let us see all these things that you might bring about fame and glory and honor and praise to your own name. We ask this in the name of our Savior. Amen.